Hello, everybody, and welcome back to We've Got Mail. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to We've Got Mail, the podcast where you control the conversation here at the Critically Acclaimed Network. My name is William Bibiani. I'm a film critic for Bloody Disgusting, and everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is Whitney Seibold. I'm a film critic for IGN, and uh, when you write into this show, you may call me Rockmeister McCool. In fact, I insist upon it, although it is optional. Um, yeah, here at We've Got Mail, we answer your emails. You write in letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Mm. Uh, we can talk about anything you want, really. Uh, frequently people ask us about stuff that is movie, TV, pop culture related. Uh, people might want to talk about new episodes of our podcasts, Critically Acclaimed, Cancelled Too Soon. Uh, if you want to write in about our new podcast, Episode Zero, where we talk about the films that inspired Star Wars, as opposed to Star Wars itself, per se. Uh, you can write about that, too. Um, really? We're here for you, and this is your podcast, so we don't like to dilly-dally. Let us begin. Whitney? Yes. What's our first email? Our first email comes from Anonymous25. Well, that so I'm guessing, narrows it down a bit. It's I'm, not Anonymous24. I'm guessing Anonymous25 uh, was writing uh, Nocturnes back in the 11th century. Luca, uh, do you mind not running into things? <laughs> Luca is doing parkour in the background here. He does that. <laughs> Luca's a very active cat. Yeah, he's doing his he's doing his laps. Getting his <laughs> getting his aerobics in. Oh god, it's <laughs> happening again. This letter comes from Anonymous25. Uh, Anonymous25 says, Dear Mr. Bibbs and Mr. Rockmeister McCool, uh, English is not my first language. I did my best. Uh, the other day I asked Rockmeister on Twitter, <laughs> Rockmeister, uh, on Twitter, <laughs> if he would recommend a movie from a list I showed him. He recommended two, Mustang and Ali Fear Eats the Soul, uh, which I appreciate. Thank you, Mr. McCool. So I was in the mood for something somber, and I thought Ali Fear Eats the Soul Sounded great. Have you seen much Fassbender? Uh, you know what? I actually don't think I've seen any Fassbender. Really? It has oh, not come okay. up. Okay. Uh, however, I didn't watch Ali Fear Eats the Soul. Uh, I had I had never seen a Fassbender film, so I began to wonder if Ali was the best choice to start with. Fassbender is a very well-regarded director, so I often chose something else to watch first rather than their best known. Okay. So I did some clicking online, and for no real reason, I somehow ended up watching The Bitter Tears of Petra von Kant. <laughs> <laughs> Are you a Bitter Tears of Petra von Kant? Uh. <laughs> Or Bitter Tears of Petron Kant. Uh, I, I see what you did. Yeah. Uh, sorry, Rockmeister, but I will be watching Ollie as my next Fassbinder, I promise. Do you guys ever do this? Just taking way too long in choosing a film to watch. This is a common modern experience. Yeah. The paradox of choice. Uh, the most popular show on Netflix is The Menu. Uh, <laughs> That's true. Yeah, you, you, no matter what you're going to watch that evening, 45 minutes of it is just sort of browsing around their very poorly curated collection. Uh, yes, uh, I found when I was sort of on, on left to my own devices, I was trying to f- – there's more to this letter. but yeah. um, Finally have an opportunity to watch something you just want yeah, to watch. Yeah, I just wanted to watch something. And, of course, I own a massive video collection. I was never really sure what to put on. Do I watch something I've seen a hundred times and just sort of veg out and not necessarily pay that much attention? Yeah. Or do I find something you know, really challenging to sort of put, my through, put myself through the ringer that night? And I had a – I developed a technique to, for choosing. Oh, what is it? I just take the video off the shelf, whatever it is. 
and I just look at it for a while. <laughs> I regard the, the box, box. The yeah. box of the video. I sort of read it. Uh, if it's a Criterion collection, sometimes there's essays inside. Invariably, I'll always want to watch that just if I look at it for a long, a long enough while. For me, like if I'm just sort of looking at titles, yeah. it's difficult to choose. But if I have, if I there's, I've narrowed it down to a couple. If I just pull one off and hold it for a while, that helps me too. That makes sense. And the you know, a lot mm. of people no longer rely on a physical media library, mm. especially for uh, movies and music. Um, which I feel is a bit of a shame. I like yeah, uh, having yeah. the tactile element. I like having the collector's element. Mm. Uh, but yeah, when you have a large enough, when you only have like, when you're like young, before like there were streaming services, before everyone could afford to have a ton of physical media at home, mm. and you only owned like 10 movies, well, that narrowed it down pretty quick. Right. <laughs> you watch one of those. If you're, you're either watching TV, whatever just happens to be literally on right now, mm. and if that doesn't appeal, you have 10 options. I literally have hundreds upon hundreds of probably well over a thousand DVDs at this mm. point because that's – I made my choices. <laughs> that's where our money went. Yeah. I have that's, some regrets but mostly I feel pretty good about it. what we were doing before paying for dates. Yeah. But, uh, you know, there comes a time sometimes I'm like, oh, what should we watch? And uh, we look a little bit on streaming. Yeah. We look a little bit at our DVD collection. Yeah. And then uh, we just watch Mystery Science Theater 3000. <laughs> that's yeah, nine that's, times that's out of ten. Be... That's my default. If I'm up late, what should I watch? I should watch a movie. Or the same episode of Futurama I've seen eight times. Yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, he says, uh, my second question is in regards to other viewing habits. Over the last couple of years, I started watching movies a lot more often. I think this year I'm averaging it over a movie a day. I haven't seen a movie every single day, but some days I've watched more than one. Now I'm questioning if this has been good for me. Uh, sometimes I feel like I'm uh, mo- moving on, moving too fast and not giving movies enough time to stay with me. There's movies I've loved watching, but then they're gone from my head very fast. It's not that I forget that I watched the movie or that I didn't remember what they were about, but they don't pop into my heads as often as I feel they used to. Mm. Does this ever happen to you? Maybe I'm being too hard on myself, though. I started thinking about this uh, since a few days ago I saw The Bitter Truths of Petra von Kant. I can't say I loved every aspect of it, but I'm still thinking about it. Wow. I mean, I saw Tokyo Story for the first time two days after, and I'm still thinking about The Bitter Tears of Petra von Kant. The, the mood of it and some of the scenes in the Fossbinder film are stuck in my head, especially the ending, which feels so unique and somber and so well damn perfect. Hopefully this is not taking too long, but you guys seem... Uh, have you guys seen the film? And if so, what do you guys think about it and about Fossbender in general? Uh, thanks for everything, guys. Your loyal listener, Anonymous25. I'll leave Fossbender to you in a second. But mm. to answer uh, the question about the rate at which we consume movies, and this is something that we run into a lot because we watch movies for a living. Yeah. Like, we watch – we try to watch as many new movies as possible every single week. And that's on top of watching mm. TV shows and other movies for yeah, our yeah. various podcasts and occasionally just watching something for fun. To remind ourselves why we do this, because it can't always be work. The work is pretty fun, but it's work. You know, it takes up time. We have to do it. So sometimes you do consume so much, it addles your brain. If you've ever been Mm. to a film festival and tried to cram in as many movies as you can, uh, the most I ever hit, I hit five in a day at Sundance. It was a long, long, long day. Good day. But I honestly could only tell you... One of the movies I saw that day. <laughs> but for me, mm. and this is this is my take on this, seeing a lot of movies, that's not something to really worry about. Mm. And I think what you'll find is that the ones that stick in your head, they're the ones that stick in your head. And oh. when you're seeing a bunch of different films mm. and 
even when you see something great like Tokyo Story and The Bitter Tears of Petra von Kant just still sticks in your head, that just means that's a really good movie. That means that one really well, connected with you. It connected with you. I think uh, there's something very valuable to that sort of I, – I hate to use the term binge-watching because that means something different. But just that sort of continuous marathon through film. Yeah, a buffet uh, of film. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that – a lot of people go through this. I, when I first started to like really become obsessed with films and suddenly had uh, access to a lot of films. Uh, for one, I was working in a movie theater mm-hmm. uh, when I first started to become obsessed with films. It's kind of what led me to my film obsession. Hmm. And I could watch anything I wanted for free at the six-screen multiplex. Yeah. So I did. Yeah. Didn't matter if it was Maximum Risk or... <laughs> That's not even the worst you know, or, of a damn Or Ants... Or, you know, and any number of just, like, crappy Hollywood clap, you know, tripe. Uh, yeah. Sure, I'll see Big Bully. Why not? Uh, because Big, Bully was, Big Bully was actually pretty good. I, I hardly remember it. but It's, it's, it's surprisingly yeah, funny. When, when you start consuming that, it's, it's, um, it's like discovering anything new for the first time. It's like you want to just start getting a, ta- a little taste of everything. And you're not going to find everything to your taste, especially at first. But I think in doing that, you're suddenly exposing yourself to this broad variety of things. Yeah. There's going to be a lot of films that uh, maybe you're not mature enough to, to understand mm-hmm. yet, or uh, you don't have enough of an understanding of cinema to understand what a director might be getting at. I felt that way about a lot of Hitchcock movies. Oh, really? So, uh, Ver- Vertigo especially. Oh, Vertigo is like, a little impenetrable sometimes. Yeah, Ver- that, Vertigo yeah. is something you like. I think you have to be well into film knowledge yeah. before you can really kind of appreciate what's going on with Vertigo because it feels really cold and alienating otherwise. Frequently when people say I want to get into Hitchcock, what should I start with? Vertigo? I'm like, no. Vertigo no, no, no. comes last. No, no, no. no. Rear, rear window. Rear window. Rear window. Rear window's a good yeah. start. Strangers on a Train is a mm-hmm. good start. Uh, Vertigo comes last. Vertigo is the final the one. The absolute say, yeah. last one you see because you're not even going to really pick up on yeah, watch, watch it. What it even means watch unless it after, you know his whole after, after Topaz. That's when you watch Ooh, Vertigo. You can skip yeah. Topaz. Okay, you can skip Topaz. Uh, Topaz is not good. <laughs> Topaz is not good. But, but, yeah, uh, I, but yeah. I think that's actually a very useful thing to do when you're just sort of starting to get into film. Just scrape up against everything. Yeah. And you're not going to find the films that you absolutely fall in love with necessarily the first time. Yeah. Uh, I found the same thing with Douglas. Um, oh, okay. I, I remember when I, I was you know, during this obsessive period finding like top ten lists, like the most varied I could. And Roger Ebert was putting out his essays of the great films at that time. And so I went to my local library and I got Written on the Wind. Mm. I didn't know anything about Written on the Wind. I didn't know anything about Douglas Sirk. And I don't think I really got it. I was like, oh, this is just like a soap opera. Fah. <laughs> and, uh, and then I realized, oh, wait a minute. This is... The soap opera. This is like the Ur soap opera. This yeah, is like the platonic ideal. Yeah, of this that. this yeah. gigantic, super melodramatic cinema. And it wasn't until I saw All That Heaven Allows and realized, oh, that's what he's getting at. And that was a couple of years later. Yeah, sometimes you need a gateway. I, I like so, it though. Yeah. I, I like what you're describing because I yeah. think that there's this thing. And again, this isn't. There's no like particularly right or wrong way to consume media as long mm. as you're giving every film a fair shake. Yeah, you're, you're actually you're not like. You're actually watching it. Yeah, you're actually watching it. Not you just thumbing through Twitter while you're watching. There's nothing wrong with doing that per se, but you can't really say you gave the movie a fair shake if that's what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. Um, So, I think I like that sort of marathon sprint because I think of it as sort of movie exercise regiments. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, where it's it's just like where where I'm just I'm giving my brain a workout. I'm giving my capacity uh, to absorb art mm-hmm. a workout 
Um, you know, I don't think we hear too much about like people in museums saying like, did I see too many paintings today? <laughs> like, not necessarily. Not yeah. necessarily. You, 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 I mean, yeah, take a break if you feel like taking a break. And don't feel the need to push yourself if you feel like there are other things you should be doing. You should be taking a breather. You should be doing something else for your mental yeah. you know, well-being. You know, take, take, take a chill. Play a video game. Go, go, out, go out, Take a walk yeah. if you can right now. Um, yeah, go, go outdoors if you can. Yeah. Hike if you can. Yeah. Or read a very old book if you can. Yeah. Uh, yeah, mix yeah. it up. But, yeah, I think watching mm. a lot of movies... As long as there's nothing else you're supposed to be doing, <laughs> go for it. Well, and especially if you're if you're making it a point to consume a lot of different kinds of movies. You asked me to recommend uh, movies off of a list. I remember being asked this on Twitter. And your list was really impressive and really eclectic of all of these various international features. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if it was like all of the films in the MCU... I, I mean, I can't help you with that. That's essentially watching all the same movie over and over again. Well, I think that's a bit of an exaggeration, but yeah, it's it's. it's I mean, there's less variety to exa- pick from. That my point is, yeah, there's yeah. like there's no variety. They're just all films in the same series. Sure, one might be better than the other, but I mean, just sort of comparing different like, different Burger King burgers at that point. Well, you're, comparing um, a- you're comparing apples to the same kind of apples. Yeah, it's like yeah. which of these two red delicious apples are the best? Red delicious is a crime. Uh, <laughs> We were just yeah. having a conversation earlier about our favorite apples. About the shittiest apples. This is what we talk about when we're not podcasting. We're talking <laughs> talk about, about the shittiest apple the shittiest choices. apples. So yeah, um, I, I, I admire what you're doing. Uh, I, I'm i not insulted that you didn't watch Ali Fear Eats the Soul. You watched The Bear Church of Petra Von Kant instead, which is way more challenging. Well, tell people um, about this movie, because I think it's a movie okay, that most people um, haven't seen. Bitter and Tears I haven't of, seen it. Bitter P- Tears of Petra Von Kant is this wonderful, over-the-top Rococo lesbian freakout. Uh, about two, Put that on the cover. Yeah, <laughs> about two, uh, yeah, sort of uh, overdressed lesbian lovers who are having an affair in a bit. Like most of it takes place in, in pretty much one location, and yeah, it's just sort of them exploring their their romance as they wear increasingly outlandish outfits. Um, yeah, it's really difficult and really challenging, and, and really yeah, it ends in this very tragic way as as Fassbender films tended to do. Uh, it's been a while since I saw it, but yeah, when I was sort of exploring through international cinema in my early 20s, I really dug it. I dug hmm. the Fassbinder that I did get to see. Um, he was incredibly pro- – he lived a very short amount of time. He was incredibly prolific. He made – I don't even know how many films. He made like 100 films or something. Uh, that seems he, like a lot. And he died in his – 30s? I'd have to look it up. That sounds like um, a lot of features. But, he, yeah, I did things like you know, just miniseries and TV shows and feature film after feature film. And, he, yeah, and they were all pretty striking. Uh, yeah, I watched Bitter Tears of Petra von Kant, Veronica Voss, Marie de Mera Brown. Uh, Ollie Fury's The Soul, I think, is his best one. It's also his most accessible. Mm-hmm. I, I maintain that the single most perfect triple feature you can construct for yourself is Douglas Sirk's All That Heaven Allows, mm. Ollie Fury's The Soul, and Todd Haynes' Far From Heaven. Just watch all three of those in a row. I mean... And you you have that story. Like, that's... <laughs> it's just the perfect... Like, you've, you've seen it repeated three times. It's three similar but very different styles. It's just all... And they're all very, very effective movies. Fair enough. I still maintain that the perfect double feature is Bicycle Thieves followed by Jingle All the Way. Or Jingle All the Way first and then Bicycle Thieves. I think you start with Bicycle Thieves. Okay. And then you... Like, people are like, oh, Jingle All the Way. This will be a nice... Mm-hmm. Weird choice, but a palate cleanser, and then people are going to say, "This is the same film." <laughs> Nobody talks about it. I'm glad we did a podcast about it. I'm disappointed mm-hmm. that it didn't completely change the conversation about Jingle All the Way. Jingle All the Way is a remake 
Bicycle of Bicycle Thieves, Thieves a mm-hmm. film that is considered by many to be one of, if not the best movies ever made. Mm-hmm. And Jingle All the Way is a remake of that. It's the same thing. It's the same fucking movie. It's a slightly different ending, but the same fucking movie. It's true. There's no jetpack in Bicycle Thieves. <laughs> there should be. Can you imagine? <laughs> so it's just a confrontation in, yeah. in a neighborhood. Um, anyway, here's a letter from Jeff. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Bibbs and Rockmeister McCool. This one's spelled M-C-K-U-E-L. Nice. Cool. Uh, long-time Cuella fan. Deville. I knew you were going to do that. Uh, long-time fan, first-time writer. I found you both when I was first transitioning from listening to music during workouts to listening to podcasts. I listened to every episode for the last three years. Oh, my goodness. Wow, well, that's amazing. Thank, thank you. Welcome to our letters column. Thank, uh, thank you. you all for Glad the amazing content you put out. About a year before I started listening to your podcast, I watched one of the weirdest movies I've ever seen, David Lynch's Mulholland Drive. There you go. Uh, I was a sophomore in college, and I watched it with my twin brother and our roommate. None of us knew who David Lynch was or what we were getting into. Oh, I envy you. <laughs> Everyone's first David Lynch is very special, if you ask me. It was a racer hit for me. Uh, I think it was a racer head for me, too. It was a racer yeah. a Blue Velvet. Okay. Um, it was probably a racer. No, it was a racer head. I remember people okay. talking up the legend on the playground. Yeah. That's how you heard about a racer head. It'll fuck you up. I, I, want, like, I, okay. wanted to, I wanted to buy my video store's copy. They wanted $80 <laughs> for it. Ah, oh, back in the day. Back in the day. when Yeah, they wouldn't sell you a rental. Because rental VHS were made of high quali- higher quality materials. Yeah, sturdier. They wouldn't wear, VHS. wear down. Yeah. So you could spend 15 bucks on a tape or $80 for the rental copy. Yeah. And there were no consumer copies of the eraser head. It was out of print. Yeah. There was a Japanese laser disc and that was it. <sighs> it was so days. rare. Now you can just get a Criterion edition. Mm. Which is good. I want people to see it. But yeah, there was something kind of, that made it kind of special. That it well, scarcity. Know, but yeah. Scarcity. Like you had to fight to find it. Mm-hmm. Like, and then when you see it, even if it sucks, there was still an experience. Like there was, yeah, a, yeah, it yeah. was at the end of a treasure hunt. Yeah, I, I didn't particularly like Mondo, New York, but it was hard to find. Yeah. And it has a scene where a guy bites a head off of mice. So it's like oh. really this extreme thing. Uh, I watched a lot of those freaky films when I was in my 20s. Anyway, so none of us knew who David Lynch was. Uh, My perspective on David Lynch was colored very poorly from that experience. But the only thing any of us liked was the the espresso scene. Oh, the one with Angelo Badalamenti. Oh, where he spits out the espresso. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, which we found absolutely hilarious, and uh, we used it as a running gag anytime we saw each other drinking coffee. Uh, but that was it for me. I had no further interest in David Lynch. Earlier this year, I, for some reason, felt compelled to watch Blue Velvet and thought it was excellent, but was hesitant to give Lynch more of a shot. I felt I was convinced this movie had to be the exception and not the norm. Mm. Then I listened to your podcast with Video Drew about Mulholland Drive. Your rave recommendations of Twin Peaks made me want to give it a watch. I was blown away by the show. I could not believe this was made by the same man that made a movie I hated so much. I've <laughs> since watched Eraserhead and The Straight Story uh, while I was watching the show and fell in love with the works of David Lynch. I had not had this much of a change of heart since a director uh, since I began to like the Coen brothers five years ago. I hated them during my time <laughs> in high school, but seeing No Country for Old Men during my first year of college changed my mind. I wonder what you saw. Now, yeah, before, I'm curious before which ones no didn't connect with you. Yeah, yeah cuz if like if it was like if you were watching like okay, I'll see Intolerable Cruelty, I totally get it. Yeah. yeah. That movie sucks. I totally <laughs> get that. Yeah, if you watch Intolerable Cruelty and The Lady Killers and uh, The Man Who Wasn't There, those those will send you out. Yeah, like The Man Who Wasn't There I, I has like some... The Man Who Wasn't There, but it's not an easy film. Again, yeah. it's it's a little impenetrable. Yeah. 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 Uh, now, after all this build-up, it's time for my question. Is there any writer, director, or actor you hated when you were younger and found yourself appreciating their work uh, more as you got older? Thank you so much for all you both do. It is always fun to listen to you. Kind regards, Jeff. Um, that is a good question. I'm trying good to question. think. Uh, well, you and I, uh, I, 
have, we're on record for this. I, I run very hot and cold with Federico Fellini. Oh, uh, I just I, I just run cold. <laughs> well, I don't think I've ever seen a Fellini film I really see, loved. Well, that's the thing. I, I hadn't. I, I watched a couple Fellini films uh, mm. when I was a little younger, when I was like maybe in my late teens or early 20s. Right. Uh, I, I watched Eight and a Half in college and I loathed it. Mm. I tried it again a few years later and I still like still didn't like it. I thought, you know, there's a kind of self-indulgence that's okay and there's a kind of self-indulgence that's just self-indulgence. And I felt yeah. that's what Eight and a Half was. Uh, but when I got a little older, I watched on the big screen La Dolce Vita. And I finally started to get it. And then somebody said, if you don't like Fellini, you should watch Knights of Kiberia. And I watched Knights of Kiberia, and I really liked that. And then they said, you should watch Armacord. And I said, Armacord sucks. But <laughs> I did you know, start to really kind of understand and get under the skin of Federico Fellini in a way I hadn't expected to. Huh. Um, I still haven't revisited Eight and a Half, and I still have unpleasant memories of it. But it's I've been a while. I've revisited Eight and a Half a few times, and it... Just I, I respect elements of it. Like it's not made mm. without craft. It's just off-putting. Like it's just, it's deep inside the head of someone who I just detest. <laughs> like yeah. I don't yeah, like yeah, this yeah. person. And so mm. asking me to spend this much time with them when nothing that is revealed in the film makes me yeah, like them more. Like, like them, and yeah, I can handle movies about people I don't like necessarily like, but I should at least be fascinated by them. Mm. I just want to leave the room. <laughs> like if this person was in a room with me, I would leave. Yeah, yeah. Um. I don't know if I have a specific director who turned me off and then I later discovered their films. There are directors whose films I didn't fully appreciate mm -hmm. until later. William Friedkin comes to mind. Uh, again, okay, I've yeah. talked about Exodus quite a few times. Um, didn't get it when I was young. Love it now as an adult. Um, the For me, the the I think the thing that comes to mind more than anything else is a genre mm. that I didn't fully understand. Uh, when that would be kung fu movies. Okay. And specifically kung fu movies from Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. American martial arts movies, nowadays, some of them are better. But Yeah, because they got the choreographers from Hong Kong. Yeah, even then they still fuck it up sometimes because mm -hmm. like, they edit it you know, in a way that is confusing or, or lazy and... But, um, you know, back when uh, Steven Seagal and Jean-Claude Van Damme were the martial arts stars that Americans knew... Mm. With the possible exception of Bloodsport, the martial arts movies aren't very good. So I didn't really appreciate kung fu movies. And when I tried to watch uh, Hong Kong kung fu movies, in particular, you know, the early films of Bruce Lee, mm. or really any film of Bruce Lee, but like, you know, the stuff that he made in China, yeah. um, I didn't get it. Mm. I didn't know what I was looking at. I didn't understand the cultural context. I didn't understand. Uh, what made one bit of choreography different from another? And yeah. it wasn't until I experienced uh, a presentation at Comic-Con uh, from the great critic Rick Myers. Okay. Uh, he did a kung fu extravaganza every year at Comic-Con. To the best of my knowledge, he still does it. I haven't been to Comic-Con in a few years. Mm -hmm. um, and he, I went just because, well, I haven't done this before. Mm-hmm. And he showed a double feature of, I think it was Victim, which was... Uh, oh, the Sammo Hung film. Yeah, Sammo Hung. Mm, right. And uh, um, I think it was The Duel, okay. which is more of a visual effects extravaganza. Mm. Um, and he didn't just show them to us, he explained it. Okay. And he talked about... You know, the acting and the kung fu choreography. And the next day on the showroom floor, I found his booth and I picked up 
uh, some of his books. And I thoroughly absorbed these books. And I began to learn more about the difference in different martial arts styles okay. and how to recognize them on screen. Uh, I learned about you know the traditions of storytelling that are a little different than they are here in America, different types of action choreographers and what they do. And so all of a sudden, I started to pick up on things in these movies I never did before. Mm. And now I appreciate them not just as action films or as maybe genre oddities, Mm -hmm. which is probably the best I was doing before I had some education. And now I can actually, like I'm I'm no expert, but I can actually watch them and go, oh, I know why this is is cool. I know what is going on here. I know what this is referencing. Uh, I understand um, when I'm watching Legendary Weapons of China that when there's a whole action sequence that's based around showing the visual effects of an action sequence... That is the filmmaker exposing the lies of filmmaking in an attempt to go back to pure martial arts and cinema. And now all of a sudden this movie where a ton of sequences that I didn't understand at all and seemed completely superfluous, I see now the purpose. Okay. So for me it was a bit of education. Mm. Not so much me just growing up and experiencing different films. It was me learning. But I'm so glad I did. And now Kung Fu is one of my favorite movie genres. Well, top hole. Excellent. Uh, here's a letter from Anthony. Okay. Hello, Anthony. Hi, Anthony. Uh, greetings, W squared. That's us. That's, that's, that's pretty good. Uh, I've been jumping back and forth between your movie reviews, Cancel Too Soon, and some of the other excellent content you provide on your esteemed network, and can't help but admire how effortless you make film analysis seem. Uh, the discussions you have about TV and movies are highly engaging, very informative, and quite edifying. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. It's, yeah. uh, it's a lot of work to make so, it look uh, effortless, uh, and uh, we, uh, we, I'm surprised it comes across that it, way. It so takes uh, equal parts, uh, careful study, uh, you know, a, a learned understanding of your topic, and a good sense of bullshitting. Um, <laughs> I think it. I think it takes a good partner. I when people yeah, tell, well, tell we, me about like they want to mm. like how do we start a podcast? Mm. Having I'm like, a good rapport was a good yeah, start. Find yeah. someone that you can talk to for a long period of time, and you aren't bored. If you're mm. not bored, other people <laughs> won't be. So uh, I know how difficult critical examinations of film can be, as I try to contribute regularly to a local film site. That's awesome. Uh, I find though that I run into a mental block when it comes to certain movies. So there's actually a fairly long list of films that I'd like to review but can't. Hmm. Uh, the worst part of this number is those films aren't even terribly deep or perplexing. It's not uh, hard to be a god or Inland Empire. We're talking about I've been stumped for months on what to say about time lapse an indie uh, an indie about a camera that takes photographs of the future huh. the same goes for the last year's Joker because I have no idea what Todd Phillips was trying to say here's a little uh, little key into Joker Todd Phillips wasn't saying anything <laughs> yeah Todd Phillips uh, was brushing up against big topics mm-hmm. but didn't actually have anything to say about them so, other yeah. than it's a problem mm-hmm. that's it that's the problem with the movie it looks like it's about something. It feels like it's about something because he's taking all of these techniques that other people have used for stories that are actually about something. But there's no substance yeah. to that film. It's this enormous trick, yeah, which is yeah. really very jokery. I'll give you that. But at the same time, <laughs> it's not an enriching or nourishing film experience. Yeah, it's just sort of... It's not even like clever or witty the way it's yeah. sort of subverting anything. Anyway, no. uh, I believe it was on an early episode of Cancel Too Soon where Bibbs That was mentioned- us, by the way. Sorry about oh, that. Oh, yeah. It's your, some, you got a widget back there making noise. Yeah. I was on an early episode of Cancel Too Soon where Bibbs mentioned that it is the critic's job to find something to say even when a movie sh- or show offers little for you to analyze. What tells me is that I can't possibly do your job no matter how easy it is you make, you make it seem. Uh, what with there being films that I'm unable to write about. Uh, maybe 
maybe I'm too rigid in what I think a review should be. When I see fan reactions that are just single line comments like this movie was just okay or this film sucked so bad that I walked out uh, walked out after 20 minutes. I find I don't get a whole lot out of them since they're from folks I don't know. I have the faintest idea of what constitutes just okay to that faceless person. Or what, it, or what it was that just offended the sensibilities of anonymous fan number 20,003 enough to make him walk out of a movie. Uh, this is something that uh, professional critics butt up against a lot, but... All the time. Uh, this is not... And this is something we complain about. When we see a great movie, we kind of know how to come at it. Uh, even if we're a little confused, we have so much we want to say. It's like, how do I start on all these wonderful things I want to mm-hmm. say about this movie? That can be a bit of a challenge when you're writing. Yeah. When you see... I worry sometimes oh, yeah. I'm being too effusive in my praise and it comes across as sycophantic yeah that's yeah, where that's, i run into trouble with like praising you, you, you gotta kind of you know, we have to modulate our i want to make sure it doesn't seem hyperbolic uh, it's really really easy to write about a shit film like if yeah. you hate something yeah you know why you hate it or maybe you don't but there's a lot like, to complain about like you're eager to yeah. explain like i know exactly why i don't like this and i can explain every reason why yeah when, and that, that makes it easier usually when you see a completely middle of the road comedy Hollywood film starring actors that are competent and it has nothing of interest to say, those are the most challenging films to write about. Yeah. Because you you have nothing to say. There's nothing like, there's nothing to No, I, and we this, went at this all the time. Yeah, and this when is, I talked like, about and you, like you can make it you can make it fairly positive because it, you know, you weren't offended, it did its job, yeah. but I have nothing to say about this movie. When I and I'm I don't remember the whole conversation from when I said that it's the critic's job to find something to say. Mm. Um I'm being very specific about you're assigned a review. You know, someone, listen. An editor gives you, yeah. Someone on this website needs to review the movie Arctic Dogs. No one has jumped, no one's champing at the bit for this, but we need a review of it. You're in charge. Yeah. So you have to turn in whatever number of words is the minimum 500, Mm -hmm. 600, 800, whatever is required of you. You need to fill that page. Mm hmm. Sometimes that's really hard because there's just nothing interesting to say. Sometimes, and I'm gonna get, I'm gonna say this right now because it sounds like from your email, and if, if I'm wrong, forgive me. And there's more to this. If, if I'm wrong, forgive me. It sounds like from your email that you're saying that like we make it look easy, so you feel like if you can't figure out something to write about a movie, um, it's it, somehow it, failing on your it, part. Yeah, yeah, that's not the case. That we all experience that. Yeah. Every film critic experiences that. One of the hardest lessons I have learned as a writer, Mm. and I struggle with this every fucking day, sometimes you just got to write the damn thing. Doesn't matter. They don't always have to be masterpieces. It would be nice if you could. Yeah, you try. But sometimes you you just explain what's in the movie. You explain what works and what doesn't. And it's okay to talk about. Sorry. It's okay to talk about in the review... This movie leaves me with absolutely nothing interesting to say. Mm. And if you think about it, there is a school of thought. Maybe it's not your school of thought, but some people do the school of thought that that's one of the worst things you can say about a movie is that Mm. it leaves you with nothing. Positive or negative. It just didn't make an impression. But that's not – yeah. And and I've, I've heard you say and a lot of critics have said that being boring is a worse sin than being bad. And I think that's what they're referring to. Yeah. Like if I see a bad film, you have something to say. Yeah. I would. You, you went through something. Like it, it, would, it at least made an impact. I would rather watch some middle of the road comedy than have to sit through Cats again. 
<laughs> you know? Oh, or, I would I would happily watch Cats again instead. But well, there are certainly movies okay, that well, push the boundaries. Cats is actually pretty crazy. But you Human know, Centipede was, Three. Yeah. Would you rather watch Human Centipede Three or What Happens in Vegas? You know, some bland. Yeah, I'd rather watch What Happens. In yeah, Vegas. exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, so, there is a line you can cross. I admit this. I, so I would I would rather be bored than offended. <laughs> Um, uh, let's finish the letter, but there's more. There's actually yeah. a lot to talk about with this stuff. Yeah. Um, I really like this topic. This is why I lean towards uh, this is the letter again. I lean towards long form criticism. I find your deep dives very helpful, and I'm very grateful for the insight you provide. It's not to say that I agree with you all the time. I was, for example, considerably less enthused about Lee Whannell's The Invisible Man, oh, than you gentlemen, because I didn't care for it turning into an over the top action film in the last third. I, th- I think it earned it. Um, I think so too, but yeah. I totally get it. No, uh, but that's I, fair. I appreciate hearing your thoughts. Just the same. Uh, I wish all the discourse regarding, uh, regardless of the subject, could be just as entertaining, thoughtful and mostly importantly civilized as the discussions you fine fellows have. Uh, that was a rather lengthy, lengthy side note because I was orig- originally writing to follow up on some comments Bibbs made on your Cancel Too Soon episode about Badlands 2005. Oh, that was a while ago. Yeah. Uh, during your discussion, the subject of the two Paul Andersons came up mm. and Bibbs revealed that he had tried watching Event Horizon five times but, <laughs> uh, but in the end wound up uh, liking the concepts in the film but not the execution. I wanted to know which other films you uh, you gents have given multiple chances to, but still don't like, and how this is similar yeah. to what we were just talking about. Um, yeah. And how many times you watched them along the same lines? Which films did you wind up liking after multiple screenings? And what's the highest number of viewings it took for you to ultimately like a film? <laughs> <laughs> My answer to the second question is six. I didn't care for the Shaw Brothers' Five Deadly Venoms when I first saw oh. it. But I kept hearing from uh, from martial arts aficionados that it was a classic. I watched it again and again and found myself appreciating it more and more with each viewing. When I finally got to the sixth screening, I had to concede that it was indeed one of the masterworks of director Cheng Che. Uh, before I forget, I wanted uh, to take some time to go through your digital mailbag. I can only imagine how much correspondence you get from your thousands of Doring fans or how many of those critically claimed that's are long, as long-winded as I am. Uh, well, you're, you're hearing uh, all, of, for all of our letters, so yeah. yeah. Uh, you're, you're we, Afri- we, don't, we don't have thousands of letters. I don't think I could... I think, I, I think if we had thousands of letters, I would have so much anxiety. <laughs> I would like want to do a We Got Mail we, every afternoon uh, and morning just to get through them all. Let's hope by the time we're getting that many letters, we can like afford... You know, people to sift through the letters for us. Mm-hmm. You know, like like famous radio DJs or have. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, your efforts to read every bit of fan mail, even the ones you're not able to get on air, are very much appreciated. As are the many wonderful podcasts you produce. Wishing you the best as always, Anthony. Um, um, yeah. Okay, um, so there's a couple of different things. So the here. question, uh, something about like, do you how many? If you, have you ever re- rewatched a film and still disliked it, sure. or have you rewatched a film a bunch of times and started to like it? Um, the only I've only a, f- a few times. Mm. It's very common. Eh, not very common. Mm. There are times when I don't like a movie, mm. and then I hear what other people say about it, and I realize that they picked up on something I didn't. Yeah. And all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, I was looking at this from the wrong angle. I thought it was about this subject, but in actuality, it's about this. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, it unlocks. A good case in point is Nacho Vigalando's Colossal. Okay. A very strange film in mm-hmm. a lot of ways. If you've missed it, it's totally worth checking out. Anne Hathaway plays an alcoholic who discovers uh, that if she walks across a playground at a certain time of day, a giant monster appears in Korea and like mimes her moves like an emotion capture machine mm-hmm. and like kills people. And she has to deal 
with sort of the godlike ramifications of that, and she suddenly realizes but, but that she's like just an average f up who yeah, just, just trying not, to get her life together. She's yeah, not just, particularly special. She's not a chosen one or anything. She's not she's doing not that a, because she's destined for greatness. She's not even a, like a particularly moral person, right? Yeah. And like, so I was looking at this, and I was just kind of seeing. You know, and my initial viewing was, okay, so it's kind of about appreciating um, a butterfly effect and realizing that you feel like you're making choices in your own life and it's really not important and it only affects you and you don't appreciate that affects other people in ways you cannot even possibly begin to fathom Mm. sometimes. So it's a fable of personal responsibility. And it's kind of about that. But what it's really uh, uh, about more than anything else is actually a character played by Jason Sudeikis. He's not the protagonist, but he seems like a nice guy, but it's actually about exploring the ways in which sort of, Mm -hmm. it's one thing to be oblivious. It's another thing to use the appearance of decency in order to do selfish fucked up things. Yeah. And so it's a much more complicated moral fable than I was giving it credit for. And it, I went from appreciating its weirdness to all of a sudden appreciating that this film is incredibly unique and really fantastic. And I went from liking it to loving it. Mm. So that's the kind of thing that happens yeah, once or twice a year. I'll just find out. I looked. I was looking at a film from my perspective, but there was yeah, another yeah. perspective in which to see it. Uh, that, that happened to me with a film called The Center of the World. Um, oh. I, I watched this. It has um, Molly Parker and oh, I forgot who the male lead was in that movie. But it's, uh, a, it's pretty much a one-room thing. It's a conversation between uh, a sex worker and her John. Mm. And I saw it as this weird sort of not very effective emotional interplay between the two characters. When I read Roger Ebert's review of it, however, he mentioned that the money aspect, which is something I wasn't even really considering, that that mm. he is hiring her. Yeah. And he was sort of like looking at the actual reality of being a sex worker and sort of the way that dictated the relationship changed my view of the film. And I actually yeah. liked it more after that. Yeah, there's many um, different ways to look at yeah. a movie. And sometimes the one that you key into right away isn't the best one. Yeah. That happens. Um, there are some movies in which I see them and I dislike them. And then people are saying, you should see this again. And I say... Okay, I trust your opinion. You generally have good taste, or your taste at least comes from something that's legit observation. So yeah, okay, I'll watch Event Horizon again. No, don't see it. A couple years later, all right, fine, I'll watch Event Horizon again. Everyone keeps raving about it. No, still don't see it. And I still don't. And there's a lot of things that I like in the movie. The cast is obviously very good. The production design is fantastic. The premise is rock solid. I find that its horror comes from a place of superficiality. Mm-hmm. And and sort of visual effects showmanship, and sort of uh, conceptually, there's some horror in there. But I don't think Paul W S Anderson has a sense of why it connects on a human level. I think he only looks at it mm-hmm. in terms of plot and visual, which is not to say that the movie is unentertaining. Well, you know, I just don't find it's, it scary. That's a good way to to go about cinema. And I, it's, I, not, it's not bad. I, I, don't, it's, I don't hate Paul W S Anderson's mm-hmm. films. Not all of them, anyway. Like there's some I really quite like, oh, yeah. even if they're dumb. But that mm-hmm. one just. I'm supposed to be scared. Mm. I'm never scared. Ever. I liked it. I thought it was scary. Yeah. I, well, we, we did a commentary track for that one a while back, and yeah. I referred to it as high-octane horror, which uh, is kind of a hard thing to pitch. It's hard to pull off. Uh, yeah, and I, I think he did it. You didn't think he did. No, I, I've I, given it many chances, and at this point in my life, mm-hmm. maybe in mm-hmm. 10 or 20 years, 
I might give it one more chance, but I gotta tell you, man, I feel like I've given that movie five or six tries. Done. Same thing <laughs> with Batman v Superman. Yeah, I, I did that. I did that with you. In fact, we watched yeah. Batman versus Superman a couple times just to see if there was something in there we were missing, and I don't think there was. No, nope. we didn't like it initially, uh... and I hate, by the way, my original review of Batman v uh, Batman v Superman. I hate that review because that review had to come out at a certain time. It had to come out before the movie was like out in theaters. It was mm-hmm. under obligation to review it before it came out. But it was also under obligation not to reveal any spoilers. And as such... Oh, so you couldn't really write I couldn't really say anything. It. Yeah. It, had, it was basically like a list of impressions. It's a terrible review. It was the only thing most people were, like, were allowed to write. Otherwise, they were breaking embargo or revealing spoilers they weren't supposed to reveal and potentially ruining people's enjoyment of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't want to do that. But I was obligated to turn in a review. Mm. So I hate that review. And I yeah. I stand by the overall sentiment, but I couldn't back it up with actual tangible observations. So I revisited it again after it had come out. And I wrote a couple of editorials about the things that really stood out to me and the reason why I didn't care for it. Mm. Uh, and then they came out with that ultimate cut. And everyone's like, well, you should see the ultimate cut. It fixes everything. And it fixes nothing. There's like it's one the same scene movie. I like better. Like than yeah. before, it's like the same movie, but there's more of it. And the stuff they reveal about the plot just reveals how the plot never made any sense. Mm-hmm. And the fundamental problems I had with the characters and the pacing and the tone, uh, they're all, all, all still there. They're it's, all baked yeah. into the into the bread. Mm-hmm. There, so there's I, no fundamental difference. Um, so I saw it again, and then we decided to do a commentary track. So I saw it one more time, and then I saw it again as we were doing the commentary track. And I don't think it's a complete wash. It's not the worst movie ever or anything it just doesn't fucking work i'm I'm the weirdo who likes justice league i think that's a fine movie the way it is i don't know about fine it clearly has flaws but it's entertaining i think it has a a really good strong saturday morning quality that i admire Uh, and and i don't think it has like pretensions beyond that which i think is what a lot of people took issue with yeah they like the pretentiousness of Zack snyder and i can appreciate wanting to take batman superman and wonder woman and not the fun superhero story? Well, no, no, I appreciate the idea of wanting to treat them as serious modern mythology. Mm. I, it's a take. All right. It's not the worst take in the world, mm. but to do so with so little ebullience, with so little <laughs> uh, uh, appreciation for mm. th- that these characters actually can be fun and not just dour. Yeah, yeah, you know the idea. We're going to take them so seriously that there's no longer any entertainment value to be had from them. I don't think that's the right approach. I don't think it's a good approach. Yeah. We've talked. We did a whole commentary track. You can still track it down. I think it's still at Sofa Dogs. You can listen to it. We go into great detail hmm. about why, we, what parts of the movie we think do work and what parts of the movie we think don't work at all, which hmm. is to say most of it. But yeah, I give the movie every chance in the world. I, right. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm done. Mm-hmm. I, I, it doesn't work. I've tried. Yeah, yeah. I've looked at like, oh, you don't understand all the symbolism. No, it's it's all there. It's all surface symbolism. Mm-hmm. There's no subtext. The subtext is just text. Yeah, yeah, like that's not the worst thing in the world. But I think it's it's Zack Snyder tricking people into thinking that it's more interesting yeah. than it actually is. I've always been uh, in- insulted by uh, people who will read a review, a negative review I write, and come at me as if I didn't understand the film. It's like, no, there's this symbol, man. It's about this thing. And my response is always going to be the same. I saw that. I just wasn't impressed by that. Yeah. Because it's not interesting. That doesn't mean it's good. Yeah. Just because you observe something doesn't mean it it's actually does that thing well. Mm. 
that's something that is actually the trick that you learn in film criticism is that just because a movie has a rationale for what it's doing, that doesn't mean what it's doing is well done. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly. actually really that, finding that line and being mm-hmm. able to describe that line is a part of the job. Going back to the earlier part of the, uh, but, uh, I'm sorry, you had more to say about this. Uh, well, yes, sorry, because uh, there was the other question. Well, you know, I was going to get there. Yeah. Is there something you've watched multiple times? Oh, sorry. And yeah, and uh, the the one I've watched, I've watched uh, two different cuts and three different times. I watched Blade Runner. Oh yeah, still not into Blade Runner. For, for I'm still st- a little surprised. It really does seem like something that would be up your alley. Yeah, you, you know, I I like me some like heady philosophical moody science fiction but uh you know ex machina i think is really excellent i Agreed. really loved annihilation by the same director and sure. uh yeah just re- really scott man uh <laughs> just something about him sends me what, out what, what really scott misty. movies do you like i like alien yep i like alien rather a lot I like The Martian rather a lot. Yeah, also great. Um, I even d- dig American Gangster, which he's not given a heck of a lot of credit for. Never even seen that one. Oh, yeah? Yeah, it never came up. Yeah, uh, uh, Russell Crowe and Denzel Washington just sort of doing the thing as well as they do. Uh, apart from that, geez. Not, uh, oh, no, and I, because I like Alien, I also like Prometheus. I, sure. I think those are good companion pieces. Uh, people who like the movie Aliens, the James Cameron film, hate Prometheus. I don't hate Prometheus. Yeah. And I think if there was only two films in the series, Alien and Prometheus, Prometheus would be a lot more understandable. Mm. But it just kind of awkwardly shoehorns itself into what already mm. existed without really contradicting some of it and some of his explanations are sort of head scratching and mm. I, I, there's a lot I admire about I, it. It's I feel, a masterpiece of like style I think and presentation. I think it's amazing. really stylish that, yeah. that, that a bio bed sequence is really awesome. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's great. Uh, yeah. The creature design is really spooky. Uh, and I like that it was able to kind of expand alien without really answering any questions. Like it wasn't like, Oh, and it turns out the alien is this period. And now we have like more technicals to deal with. I feel that's what aliens did. Like, I don't actually feel like it did, but I it, the focus yeah, shifted. Yeah, I'll give you yeah. that. It's like in this world there are no alien queens. That was something James Cameron came up with. Well, um, yeah, but it's reasonable. They had, yeah, the eggs I, had to be laid by something. But yeah, I tried. I tried Blade Runner, the director's cut, uh, and I tried when it, like the one from the early nineties. Mm-hmm. It was like ninety two. That one came out, and then I did the final cut from like the mid two thousands, which is pretty which much is, the director's it, cut but a little cleaned up it's, yeah it's pretty much the same I didn't yeah. notice any it looks better differences. it looks better they really cleaned the shit out of that movie that movie looks perfect in that final cut like it yeah, looks like it was shot yesterday still boring uh, <laughs> I disagree it's, but it's, fair it's not yeah it's still not an interesting film I feel like it it it, it, it speaks it gives lip service to interesting ideas without actually having any interesting ideas well the difference I think in Blade Runner is that it's not really trying to call it te- the interesting ideas are just sort of baked into the hard-boiled detective story mm. they're not actually trying to really delve into the details of the world unless it actually relates to the detective story that we're mm. watching so in the case of roy batty talking about how he doesn't want to die that's his whole motivation for every crime he's committing so mm. that's relevant if it's not it's not in there which character roy- uh, the record howard the okay yeah um anyway, I, I like the one more than you but I want to get back to an earlier bit in this email, actually, mm-hmm. because it's really, um, the again, the idea of trying to find something to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, again, it's really hard, but I want to talk about maybe some of the tricks that we've learned in terms of how to discuss something that is just mm-hmm. not worth discussing. Okay. <laughs> um, and I think 
in those kinds of Thugs. situations, you 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 want to just explain when you're explaining why a movie doesn't work. It can sometimes help to explain why something else does work and why this helps build a comparison. Mm. That can help you fill out a paragraph. No, oh, there you go. You know, <laughs> like all of a sudden, well, why doesn't Blade Runner work but Ex Machina does? Well, here's what Ex Machina does, mm. and here's something Blade Runner is also trying to do. You have to make it clear they have the same goal. But Blade Runner does this, and Ex Machina does this. Mm. Boom. A couple of paragraphs out of the way. Um, sometimes you can use this as an opportunity to discuss the whole genre that the movie is in. And talk about how this genre explores these elements, these storylines, and here's why movies in this genre appeal, and here's why this one just kind of touches on that. Mm. That can also get you a couple of paragraphs yeah. out of your thing. Sometimes writing can be very nuts and bolts. Mm. And again, but yeah. the other thing I want you to maybe think about, if you're thinking about writing reviews and you start thinking about how to fill a page and sometimes it's a little mechanical, read the works of Pauline Kael. <laughs> Pick any of her like collections of review of reviews and read them. She is not addicted to structure and she is not afraid to digress and make uh, her reviews personal while still discussing the actual nuts and bolts of the film. Mm-hmm. I remember the first time I read her review to West side story. I didn't know you could write a review like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll just leave it for you to find. You can find it pretty easily. I just didn't know that you could just do this. And all of a sudden I'm like, Oh, you can have fun with film criticism. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be, like a paper you write for class. Mm. So, anyway, it's a thought. Okay. Uh, here's a letter from Paul. Hello, Paul. Hi, Paul. Um, dear Bibbs and Rockmeister McCool. <sighs> That's what I got. Um, Long time <laughs> listener, first time writer. Uh, just a brief note I was listening to your episode on the Oscars roundup. Mm. Uh, since I couldn't be bothered to watch that stuff, congratulatory, that self congratulatory. Congratulatory crap this year. Uh, at the end, Mr. Bibiani made what I thought was an excellent point about only critics should be allowed to vote for the Razzies. Uh, rightly because critics would do so not only out of seriously considered and justifiable reasons. Uh, upon further reconsideration, however, I think this would be a terrible idea. Yeah. The reason being that the moment, the moment the Razzies are clearly just voted on by anyone and everyone should as such do not have to be taken seriously. Hence... As has often happened, the filmmakers themselves can often show up to collect their rewards as they are happy to be, quote, in on the joke. Uh, I'm not sure if, if you've seen the video of Halle Berry accepting a Razzie. Yeah, she was a she good was, sport. Yeah, she, she was a good – she, like, put on this performance just, like, in tears. I'm so happy to have it. It doesn't – you don't understand how, how how much hard work and collaboration goes into making a big piece of crap. <laughs> yeah, she, she Sandra was really Bullock annoying. was also a good sport as well. To yeah, be fair, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, this soothes the ego a little bit, and they can always tell themselves, well, this is a joke award, and who cares what Razzies voters think? As soon as you make the Razzies a serious award, the joke disappears, and it actually becomes a serious and hurtful attack on the filmmakers in question. <sighs> I have issues with that. I'm going to get minute. to that in a second. Yeah. yeah. Um, at, at this point, we really do have a need for singling... At this point, do we really have a need for singling out the poor judgment of often hardworking and embattled but earnest filmmakers who are unfortunate enough to create a dud? Uh, As you have said yourself, no one sets out to make a bad film. Even the worst film takes hard work and dedication, and it is often easy to get lost in the weeds. Uh, As to wonder whether or not we need the Razzies, that's another question, but surely a jokey and somewhat playful award is far better than a carefully considered and earnest one. Uh, yours randomly, Paul. Hi, Paul. Um, okay, a couple of things with this. Um, we don't need the Razzies. I think we can all agree the mm. Razzies are unnecessary. Well, here, and when we talk about I'll, the Razzies I, and we mm. take them seriously, the Razzies are functionally criticism. Mm. We just think that if you're going to criticize something, it should mean something. Now, I see your point. 
Mm. It's okay to just sort of write the Razzies off as just a bad joke. But that's the idea is that we have to protect the filmmakers. Our concern is protecting the idea of having standards. Yeah. They, um, and it's a different perspective. And yeah, they're, they're well, not necessarily I'm, one's better than the other. Just, I'll go, yeah. I mean, I'll go one further. We don't need the Oscars either. We don't need any yeah. awards shows. We can just consume great art. The Oscars were invented to keep and... actors and directors happy. They were. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They were. Studios um, were, were basically owned these people yeah. and their careers. And so they invented a system in which we can give them gold statues once in a while so that they feel better about themselves right. and feel like they're making real art. That's why it was invented. Yeah, and, and we, we bring this up a lot. And, and I, I'm... Def- I, have, I feel like I have to defend the the art of criticism a lot uh, because I think mm. a lot of people kind of misinterpret what it is we do. You know, we give a bad review to a bad film. That's an earnest response. We're allowed to hate stuff. And Movies are trying to make us have an emotional response. Yeah. A negative response is fair. Is, is an emotional response. Yeah. And as long as you're being honest about it, uh, you know, you can write uh, write a well written review about a bad film that you had a bad experience with. If a filmmaker reads that review and feels bad, I'm not so concerned. They made a piece of art that made me feel bad. Well, so also, I think it's okay for, for me. filmmakers. They're, no, for, they're, they're for audiences. Or, or for other critics or yeah. for readers or for a certain uh, audience. We're, not, whoever, writing whoever them a, we're them. not writing them a birthday card. Well, also, we're writing I, a performance evaluation. Exactly. And if I, your I boss says, hey, you're doing something wrong... That's, I mean, not that we're their boss, but we're the ones who are watching the stuff that they make. It's yeah. a valid response. It, it, it's a totally valid response. And, it, you know, this, this idea that we should be a little bit lighter because the filmmakers worked very hard. Look, filmmakers work very hard on every film. Nobody just sort of throws off a film. Maybe Herzog. But... <laughs> Corman. Uh, Cor- Cor- okay. Corman, Cor- Corman, Corman thro- threw off a film. And there you know are some what? films that are thrown and off. And you know what? Most of those are shit. Yeah. <laughs> like, so, for some reason, Little Shop of Horrors stuck in the consciousness of somebody who wrote a musical, and that kind of yeah. kept it alive. Little Shop of Horrors is not fun to watch. It's not a good movie. It's not funny. No. But, like, the, the whole uh, uh, Audrey the Human Woman in the original Little Shop of Horrors, she's, like, addicted to medicine and stuff. Like, that's all she eats. I remember that. Uh, uh, like, or one of the characters eats a lot of medicine. Very it's just weird. weird jokes. Not funny. Famously shot over the course of five days. Nicholson's good in it. No, because he's Jack Nicholson. Well, still, was... you know, to, to be fair, like, let's just <laughs> give credit where credit is due. Uh, it's an interesting little footnote to like the beginning of his career. More of than course. Making it a greater film. It's like Matthew McConaughey yeah. being good in Larger Than but, Life. Yeah. Who cares? But he is good in it. But yeah. Uh, Terrence Malick worked very hard on A Hidden Life. That's a great movie. And I would recommend that to anybody. And I'm glad he worked hard on that because he made a great work of art. The people who made Serenity worked very hard on that, and they made a piece of shit. Well, even Terrence Malick. Terrence Malick has worked very, very hard on, um, mm. well, what was that? Night of Cups. Night of Cups. Or Song to Song, which he made back-to-back. Song to Song Cups. isn't terrible. Night of Cups is terrible. All right, yeah. I would argue Night of Cups is a legitimately bad movie, mm. and I'm sure Terrence Malick put in as much effort making that thing as almost any other movie he's ever made. Yeah, and so, it sucks. It's okay to say it. It's yeah, and I think so. Just because somebody put in a lot of toil doesn't mean I owe them a good review. I'm not here to yeah. review their level of toil or how hard they worked. If that were the case, every Terry Gilliam film would get five stars yeah. because he works bloody hard on those things, and all of his productions are bloody cursed because he's kind of a dickhead. Well, it also uh, implies that the job, like that, that 
you know, filmmakers work really, really hard. So does fucking everybody. Yeah. If a plumber works really, really hard to fix my pipes and they don't work, and, yeah. the, and like the sa- and the kitchen floods, I'm gonna tell him he didn't do his job very well. Mm. So if you work really, really hard to make a movie, and that movie turns out in such a way that it is an uncomfortable, awkward, mm. painful experience to sit through, that's, that's reasonable yeah. to say. And the filmmaker doesn't ever have to read that, mm. which raises, which brings me to the point. That if critics rev- did the Razzies, and I think I was just kind of throwing that off the cuff. I don't actually necessarily well, the, believe that. But if critics actually, did the Razzies, it would... I actually wrote a, and numerous years ago, wrote an essay to this effect. I like, how do we fix the Razzies? And my, my solution was we need to get a body of critics to be the judges, not, you know, Joe Schmo is picking at low-hanging well, fruit. Well, that, pre- that argument presupposes that the Razzies are worth saving, which, mm-hmm. not necessarily. It's really not necessary, but... Your argument is sort of saying if we need if we have the Razzies, shouldn't the Razzies mean something? Mm-hmm. And having this sort of stamp of disapproval mm-hmm. on something isn't necessarily an indication that that stamp will be wielded well. Mm-hmm. We all have seen film critics take pot shots at low hanging fruit. Mm. And that can be, you know, gratifying for the critics. But, well, you know, that's we true. Un- but it's we like, understand that it's a little. But uh, we've also seen critics, mm. you know, have a certain pack mentality, mm. where if a lot of people support one opinion on something, it's hard to pipe up and say, actually, the new Hellboy is rather fun. Mm. It's just hard to get in there. So sometimes more distance is needed to be able to say something like, "What really was the worst movie of the decade?" If such a thing exists. Um, I'm not one of these critics, and we've talked about this before, and you're not either, mm. who believes that an annual worst of list is unnecessary and insulting. It yeah, is yeah. if you only use it to take cheap shots. If you're only using it to insult people, yeah, yeah, that sucks. If you're saying, however, here are the movies that we learned from this year and that we need to make sure that we learn from these mistakes and that these storytelling things are outdated or not effective or this was a bad production and we should try to help this be avoided then we're using negative criticism for something positive mm. and i think it's something we should be yeah, able yeah. to do and i think it's okay to say as ebert has said i hated this movie yeah you just have to explain why yeah yeah and it has to be a good reason uh, agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Um, the, I, I I believe in the power of negative criticism and you know, the, this this notion that rises every couple of months. Or why do you have to be so negative? Because I hate it. Yeah. I can hate stuff. Let my shut up and let people enjoy things. You shut up and let me hate something because that's my reaction. You know, just yeah. negative criticism can be. I mean, yeah, mm. not everybody thrives on it, and oh. I don't think. Which is why I don't think you know filmmakers should be required to read their reviews. If you filmmakers shouldn't read reviews, they probably shouldn't. And if you do, it's you like should know what you're getting into. We write we write reviews. We don't read the comments under those. I do. I try oh, not I to. Yeah. But I, I mean, some, sometimes they're sometimes I go down nice. just sort of morbid curiosity. But yeah, yeah. Um, but I, the, a case in point actually, mm. uh, uh, Martin Scorsese. Uh, Martin Scorsese's mm. first movie, "Who's That Knocking at My Door," uh, a very excellent uh, early piece about um, a guy struggling to understand uh, the woman he loves. Mm. Um, you know, it's a little young and naive, but shows a lot of promise. It's very well made. And then Scorsese got swept up in the Corman School and made a film called Boxcar Bertha with Barbara Hershey and um, um, David Carradine. It's not bad. 
but it's nowhere near his best movie. And after he made that movie, which was mm. his sort of studio picture, John Cassavetes told him it was a piece of shit. <laughs> and Martin Scorsese took that to heart and decided to make something very personal that was unlike anything he was seeing. And that's when he made Mean Streets. Which is kind of the, the start of... Yeah, Scorsese and, and it completely yeah. reinvented the gangster genre, and mm-hmm. it helped launch you know new waves of crime movies. Uh, it's w- arguably the most important movie in his career, um, and uh, yeah, if John Ca- if everyone had just been nice and said good job, Martin Scorsese might have kept doing that. Yeah, but John Cassavetes just told him to your face. I'm going to tell you right fucking now, you sold out. Mm-hmm. You made a bad movie. I hope you make something good. Make something good next time. Yeah, and yeah, hmm. rather than just let it's, it slide. It's it's, uh, it's the critics' curse, to be honest. That's yeah. that's what we got to do. Um, another Ebert story. Uh, he yeah. he hated Three Amigos. I totally disagree. I think that movie's mm. funny. I, he he just thought it was jejun and yeah. sloppy and not funny. And the infamous El Guapo makes yeah. me laugh every time. <laughs> But uh, he was on a talk show uh, just talking about film criticism with Gene Siskel at the time. And uh, the other guests were the star. I think it was Chevy Chase or maybe it was all of the stars of, of Three Amigos. I haven't seen the clips. So and they know. asked, like, what's the best film of the year? And they, they listed their best film of the year. And they said, what's the worst film of the year? And Roger Ebert just, like, sort of winced a little bit and said, Three Amigos. Like, you're, like he's saying it right to the star on yeah. television. It's like, yo, I'm a critic. I got to say it. I think yeah. this is the worst thing. Don't ask a film critic yeah. their opinion. If, if you don't want to hear, if you it, don't yeah. want to hear it, it's mm. rough, man. And we, <laughs> yeah, it's our job yeah. to be honest. Uh, here's a letter from Kaylin. Hello, Kaylin. Hi, Kaylin. Uh, I think we covered everything in that letter, but um, yeah, yeah. Uh, and again, a fair point. And if your argument is we don't need the Razzies, we don't. We don't. And uh, we can have different perspectives on what the Razzies should be if we have it. If you think it should be meaningless, there's actually a good argument for that. Yeah. If we were in charge, we'd do something different. Fair enough. Mm. Anyway, Kaylin says, uh, Hey, Bibbs and Whitney, uh, this weekend I learned a valuable lesson about false memories. I was listening to mm. a previous episode of We've Got Mail in which you were discussing the year that you lost faith in the Oscars. Uh, I have a very vivid memory of that year for me. I was a child, and for the first time I was excited about the Oscars. A movie called Whale Rider stuck oh, yeah. in my head as the best picture winner. This convinced me that it must be the best movie ever. So I went to my local movie gallery and went to a copy, and I absolutely hated it. <laughs> well, I think Whale, Whale Rider's well, I think Whale Rider's yeah. fine, but yeah, it's um, not amazing. I thought it was boring and really hard to get through, so from then on I have taken Oscars with a grain of salt. Yeah. Uh, anyway, flash forward to this weekend when I was reminiscing about this incident, I decided to look up the movie. Not only did it not win Best Picture, it wasn't even nominated. <laughs> nope. Uh, so nominated I, for anything? Was like Keisha Castle Hughes nominated or something? I, I think it had. It was one of those things that had buzz, but I don't think it actually was nominated for anything. I'll look it up just um, so we know. So I've been holding a grudge against the Academy for 16 years over a false memory. Uh, Keisha Castle Hughes was the youngest nominee for Best Actress at the time. Mm. Uh, she would eventually be supplanted by Kuvanjane Wallace for Beasts of the Southern Wild. Ah, uh, okay. Okay. So it was nominated for it was an nominated. Oscar. An Oscar. Not Best Picture. Um, also, I'm excited to say that I picked 15 winners correctly this year at the Oscars. Nicely done. Uh, but I did not predict Parasite taking home Best Picture. That was an epic moment. Signed, Caitlin. Uh, that really was. And it's hard mm. to believe considering all the hell that we've gone through there was only, Since Parasite won like Best Picture? Seven months ago. No, it was two or months se- ago. Seven weeks ago, excuse me. It was, it was two months ago that Parasite won Best Picture at the Academy Awards. And it seemed for a brief shining moment like maybe 2020 is going to be pretty cool. 
Damn it. <laughs> we, we peaked, oh, silly. We peaked early. Yeah. But I do want every once in a while, I, I, I every once in a while when I think back on like winners of the Academy Awards and I think about, um, you know, Green Book winning and I'm just like, ah, that sucked. Or I think about Crash winning, like, ah, that sucked. But every once in a while you remember that something like Parasite won or that Moonlight won and you're just like, every once in a while they do okay, right? Once in a while they pick a good one. Once in a while they pick a legitimately good, interesting movie mm-hmm. that deserves to be on the record books and we didn't even see it coming. Like, like we didn't think they'd be, I didn't think they'd be cool enough. Yeah. I thought it was going to get maybe best foreign language film and maybe best screenplay. Mm. Didn't maybe best director. Never thought it was going to win best picture. Yeah, same. It still makes me happy to think about. It. I think same, that's cool. same with Moonlight and especially the, with the big fake out at the ceremony. Oh, I know. It's like, oh, La La Land. Oh, kidding, kidding, kidding. I walked out of the room and like, oh. not, not, I'm not disgust. Just yeah. like, ugh, saw this one coming. Yeah. That's a shame. Like I don't, I don't even hate La La Land. I just don't think it's best picture worthy. Like, I, I don't like La La Land. But... I, I like it fine. I think it's one of those movies where I feel like the enormous amount of awards and attention that it got kind of hurt it a little bit because it's actually kind of just a little small movie. Yeah. It's like not it, a big major if it, if it Hollywood were, yeah, epic. If it were this weird sort of off-to-the-side curiosity, yeah, then, yeah it's, it's impressive for something like that. I, but, think, yeah. I think it would have been better in the long run for La La Land's reputation if it had only like been nominated for like best song and best actress hmm. like if it just been like those two like those two things that it won and then it was considered like oh you know la la land was overlooked that's a shame we liked that movie that probably would have been better for it it would have been better for the artist yeah, what, yeah. winning best picture is one of the worst things that could have the artist is lovely it's a sweet movie. Mm. It's well made. It's nicely acted. Everything in it's really, really good. It just doesn't really stand out after a while. If it had just been this little cute movie that you should see if you love old timey movies, mm. that would have been wonderful. And now everyone mm. says it's overrated. It's not. It's really good. It, it is. Well, maybe it is overrated, but maybe it's, it's, it should, but it's not. It really. should still be highly rated. Now it's yeah. underrated because everyone says it didn't deserve to win Best Picture, and maybe it didn't deserve to win Best Picture. But that shouldn't be its legacy that it wasn't good enough. <laughs> it's like it should be. That was pretty good. Yeah. Good for them. That was well made movie. I would enjoy watching that again. <laughs> anyway, uh, here is a letter from well from William. <gasps> Someone else. There are other Williams in the world. That or I wrote it without yeah. realizing it. Uh, no, I don't think this is you. All right, let's find uh, out. Let's, uh, this is, uh, hello, DJ Jazzy Bibbs and the Fresh Wit. See, I write that. That's plausible. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe this is you. Okay. Uh, I'm not myself today. Maybe I'm you. <laughs> uh, I enjoyed your recent We've Got Mail episode wherein you discussed MST3K and movie riffing as it relates to classic TV horror hosts and the Hope and Crosby Road movies. This reminded me that Mystery Science Theater 3000 wasn't the only movie-riffing show to debut in the late 1980s, but it was the one that stuck. Among its contemporaries were the Canned Film Festival, starring starring SNL's Lorraine Newman. Uh, The show followed the goings-on at an old movie theater during its midnight screenings, cutting back and forth between an old B-movie and the shenanigans of the theater staff. Sounds interesting. Mm -hmm. Uh, Though the movie would be cut down, most episodes still clocked in in an hour and a half in length. There was also Mad Movies with the L.A. Connection. I know about Mad Movies, uh, where the eponymous improv troupe took public domain movies, cut them down to a half hour, and overdubbed the soundtrack with their own comical dialogue. I remember Mad Movies here in L.A. 
Uh, do you have any memories of other, any other non-MST3K riffing shows? What do you think MST3K went on to have such success and influence while its contemporaries are largely forgotten except by a handful of TV nerds like myself? Keep on podcasting. William. Um, uh, well, I actually, for me, mm-hmm. uh, MST3K was friendly. Which isn't to say those other shows weren't, but MST3K is very lo-fi puppet-centric presentation Mm. was extremely inviting and I think it's something that appealed particularly to young people because it felt like the next evolution of something like Pee-wee's Playhouse. Yeah. Um, For me, Joel was like my kids show host after I would have normally have grown out of that like around eight or nine or something and that sort of of didactic talking to the camera, hey kids uh, kind of mentality was, you know, seen as a little passe. Mm. So he, he, that early stuff introduced me to cinema. There used to be sketches about how things in movies worked and why cliches were cliches and what Foley was and stuff like mm. that. So for me, it was incredibly inviting. And I felt mm. like I was welcomed into that world. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I think the fact that it was made in Minnesota has a lot to do with that. Mm. Uh, there was, although they're you know, skewering these bad movies, uh, often very viciously. Yeah, some uh, every once in a while you watch one and it just seems meaner than the others and it's actually a little harder to watch. Well, keep, keep in mind, these guys had to watch those movies like a total of six times or something oh, just yeah. to get the jokes down. Oh, and sometimes I'm very sympathetic. Yeah. I cannot imagine watching Manos, The Hands of Fate like, without MST3K. Like several times just so they can get the jokes yeah, down and figure out what to say about this movie. That's a tough job, actually. Yeah, yeah. To be fair. Um, oh, gosh. I, I can't remember the title, but I remember uh, watching Mystery Science Theater. It was rec- recommended to me by uh, my sister's boyfriend at the time. It's like, mm. oh, you, you're, you're 15, you'd love this show. I was like, okay, I'll seek it out. Oh, yes, I do love this show. Thank you, 18-year-old <laughs> person. Uh, and it, you know, it was, I saw that it was coming up at midnight on Comedy Central. I was at a friend's house as we stayed up late and we watched it. And of course, we fell asleep before the end, but we loved it up until that point because uh-huh. we, we couldn't stay up that late. Uh, there was another show that was uh, contemporary, contemporary to uh, Mystery Science Theater that did just like really extreme horror movies. Yeah. And it was only one guy and you didn't see like a silhouette. He would just sort of riff on it. Uh, you just sort of hear his voice giving commentary throughout and he was making a lot of jokes. Mm-hmm. I think he debu- debuted with the movie Street Trash, which is vile. Did he do the whole movie um, or was it just like a half hour clip show? Maybe it was just a half hour clip show. I think you're thinking of drive-in reviews. Maybe it is. I don't remember the title. Comedy uh, Central that, uh, had a show. When Stuart yeah, it, was Gordon, on, it was on Comedy Central. When Stuart so, Gordon yeah. passed away, uh, mm-hmm. I was re- suddenly remembering my introduction to Stuart Gordon's films, uh, specifically this one show I watched on, I remember it was on Comedy Central, and mm-hmm. I remember they showed clips from really violent or gross horror movies. And they would mm-hmm. show the really gross stuff. Um, and uh, yeah, I couldn't remember what the hell it was. I just remember that they showed clips from uh, Riccio and Reanimator and From mm-hmm. Beyond and a whole bunch of Basket Case of Memory Serves. Oh, nice. And I put it out on Twitter, and people were just like, they gave me all of these other shows. That it was not, and they were cool looking shows. And then someone finally sent me like a, a YouTube clip of drive in reviews. The, this is the it's nineteen ninety three. This is the one I'm thinking yeah, of. Yeah, this was the, this was a really formative show for me just because you know again, before streaming and even before the proliferation of home video that you could buy at a reasonable price. Mm-hmm. 
your access to cult cinema was limited to whatever your local video store had. Mm. And usually they had a couple of things, but their cult section was or either part of their horror section or its own shelf. Mm. But it was pretty limited. Yeah. So all of a sudden being able to see, oh, my God, I don't know what From Beyond is, but it looks like the coolest thing ever. And if I ever get a chance to see this. I will. And it's sort of the thing where you would scour the TV guide every week to see if it was ever on Cinemax or yeah, something. Yeah. And then you finally see it. And you're like, oh my god, it really is that good. Holy crap. Drive-in Reviews was that. And uh, thank you to everyone who made Drive-in Reviews if you're listening. That was another show that was similar. Mm. Not the same. Yeah. A show that I liked, and I'm actually surprised it hasn't had some sort of resurgence, uh, but it was uh, for music videos, was pop-up video. Oh, yeah, yeah. Remember that on VH1? VH1, yeah. They um, would show a music video, and then they would just pop up little blurbs over so the music it's video. Like a little trivia. Yeah, yeah, it'd be trivia about the music video, or maybe it would be sort of tangential like, trivia, uh, letting you like know how, about, like... How, high, how high, high the song charted on the Billboard charts. Yeah. Where the artist was most successful in the world. You know, yeah. Little bits of trivia like that. Yeah, or like they would do like a music video for Aerosmith's Crying, and they would talk about bungee jumping was invented in blank. Yeah. Like, that kind of thing, and... It was kind of fun, and I feel like that basic format was pretty good. Like, you could do it's, that for anything, yeah. really, and it would be, be potentially interesting. I do remember when uh, pop-up video was, was really big, and there was this rise of sort of the, the riff-based movie-watching programs. Yeah. Uh, you know, at the time, I thought this was a great way to sort of deconstruct media. It's like, okay, well, we, we, we got the gist. We know how to consume movies now. Why don't we just sort of talk about the f- very fact that we are consuming movies and mm-hmm. kind of share our open reactions to it extemporaneously? Yeah, and commentary tracks were starting to become popular exactly, on yeah. Laserdisc and, and DVD at the time. But I remember there, were, there was a lot of criticism of stuff like pop-up video because it was essentially distancing you from d- – deliberately distancing you from the art. And it's true. And my my counter argument is we're already distanced from the art. We're we're Gen X, man. We're too cool for school. We we're <laughs> we're one step removed from everything, man. So we may as well put something fun over the top. My my counter argument to that, that's fair. Mm. But my counter argument to that is, um, I don't think your first experience with something should be the the riff of it. I mean, maybe it was something you'd never normally watch or have access to. Yeah. Like maybe like Mystery like, Sense, like, Mystery movies, Sense. like yeah. a lot of those things would be movies that you couldn't see otherwise because they were, you know, weird Gamera movies that never got screened over here in America. And that was that. Yeah. Um, but when it came to something like pop up video, these were mostly music videos that you would have already seen. Yeah. Because music videos were a really huge um, part of the culture in the late, uh, 1980s and 1990s. And they, they gradually waned and they're still made and occasionally they still make a big impact. But you, we would just watch music videos for hours on end. Mm. And when they would show one that we liked, that we'd seen over and over again, it was cool because we couldn't watch it whenever we wanted to. Mm. So there was a lot more interest and a lot more active participation uh, with these kinds of things. So theoretically, if you're watching them on a pop-up video, you've probably seen them already. Mm-hmm. And if you haven't seen them already and you're only watching pop-up video... Pop-up video is probably as immersed as you want to get in music videos. Exactly. <laughs> so, in any case, I, I guess it's just basically just like commentary tracks distance you from the movie. Well, then don't watch the commentary track first. Yeah. Why would you? It's weird. Well, you know, you talk to David Lynch. He's like, well, you shouldn't watch a movie like that. If you're going to watch the movie, you should watch the movie. Also yeah. fair. That's a fair critique. Yeah. I disagree with it, but that's fair. Mm-hmm. 
All right. So that, 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 I think that's something that's still sort of carried along with a lot of the riffing stuff. People say, is that really good for you to riff on a movie? It's like, well, you, you are putting a little, a little bit of, for lack of a better term, distance yeah. between yourself and the, and the art in question. But if you, we live in a media-saturated culture. Mm-hmm. We can't take all art with the same amount of you know, analysis necessarily. Yeah, or at least, and, at least the same amount of hypnotic and, you know, appreciation. And we also need to acknowledge that a lot of the art that is put out there is awful. <laughs> and it's okay to acknowledge that. Well, I consider... Which is, you know, I guess the theme of this, this letters episode. I consider Mystery Science Theater to be, you know, a truly fascinating postmodern show. Yeah, yeah. In a lot of ways, because you're it's not... Like post-media in a lot of ways. Yeah, like you're watching a movie, kind of. You're not watching the movie. You're watching people watch a movie. Mm-hmm. And you're seeing how... They're funny people, and, you know, they're they're presentation is prescripted but those are jokes that came out of the movie those are mm-hmm. observations that came out of watching the movie those are pop culture connections and punchlines and interpretations that came from experiencing this art so i think that mst3k on some level is a witty form mm-hmm. of film criticism mm-hmm. and i think that it's you know all art is a reaction to something and getting a live reaction to something has an element of cultural and artistic fascination, mm. so I'm down with it. Just get, you know, it's going to be done well. Yeah, yeah. Do we have time for one more? Uh, sure, maybe one more. Last here. one. Okay, let me find one here because I actually closed up my email by accident. Um, here is a letter about Firefly. Okay. Uh, this one comes from uh, Johnny Starlight. Oh, hi, oh, Johnny hi. Starlight. Uh, she's yeah. written in before. Um, Hey, Benz and Whitney, uh, I just want to tell you guys that I'm really enjoying your Firefly podcast. For a while, I was a pretty big fan of the show. I went to a few brown coat meetups and all that before my fandom just moved on to other things. It was the first Joss Whedon thing that I ever saw way back in 2008 when I was in college, uh, followed by Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog, then Dollhouse, then Buffy, then Angel. I didn't see Serenity until somewhere between Dollhouse and Angel. Okay. I was in my early, mid-twenties, <laughs> and I, de- I was definitely too old for Buffy by then, but I mm. still liked it, and I didn't love it. I'm sure I would have if I had seen it as a teenager. Yeah. As I'm sure you can tell, Joss Whedon was very big in my friend's circle back then. I loved The Avengers when it first came out, and I really enjoyed Cabin in the Woods. I haven't rewatched Firefly and Serenity in about six to eight years, so I've been watching along with you guys. Uh, you've definitely brought up some points that I never thought about before, which is always good, and has given me context for the show. I would also say that the show feels like it lacks some sort of maturity. Yeah. Uh, maybe that isn't the right word, but... Uh, it's not like my taste in TV or movies are so incredibly fancy or sophisticated. I'm sorry, guys. I liked Kingsman. <laughs> That's fine. We're not. Yeah. We're, we're we're in the minority on Kingsman. We yeah, just, we just, a lot of people really like that movie. I think we it's just some. But I don't. I, don't, I can handle immaturity. I find Kingsman very mean spirited about. Yeah, it's it, that. That's a bully. That's a bully of a movie. Um. But I guess at the age I first watched the show, I felt like it had such big ideas, and I really loved the way it melded sci-fi and western tropes together, two genres that were staples in my household growing up. Now Joss Whedon's writing style and genre uh, mashings are so commonplace, seeing it in this show doesn't feel so shiny anymore. This is the first time I've watched the show since I started seriously and regularly doing sex work. Uh, My college roommate who got me to watch Buffy and Angel was a sex worker, and I was in the early stage of being a professional dominatrix the last time I watched Firefly, but it really has become my life in the years since, along with producing clips and working in the adult entertainment industry. Awesome. Uh, Mal's comment and treatment of Inara pissed me off back when I first saw the show, and boy, do they really want to make me stab him in the face now. (laughs) 
I'm uh, glad we're not alone on this. Yeah, yeah, that, this um, that it really doesn't right. read as good as we remember it reading. And, and we're hearing from a legit sex worker here. Yeah. So um, it's even more frustrating that Inara would put up with his degrading and demeaning comments, considering that she lives in a world where being a companion is not only legal, but seen as a prestigious profession. Even in our world where sex work is still illegal in various forms and highly stigmatized and discriminated against, e- even when it isn't, uh, the most recent, uh, most recently, the USSBA specifically stated in its guidelines for disaster loan assistance for small businesses during our current world crisis is that people earn most of their income from quote a prurient sexual nature don't qualify for loans. Oh fuck that! Meaning that cam girls, performers, femdoms, producers, and legal brothel workers who obtain legal business licenses in their respective states where they could legally do so for their work don't qualify for this aid. And in person, oh. in person workers especially are really hurting right now, just oh. like everyone else is suddenly become unemployed. That sucks. Yeah, no one would put up with some whiny broke man like Mal demeaning their profession unless he was really making them a lot of money. (laughs) (laughs) And I have a hard time believing that Inara, no matter how much she cares for the crew of the Serenity, is really getting enough business to make up for his shit treatment of her by by being attached to this ship. There's more I can say on this, but since Whitney hasn't seen the show yet, I'll write in about it later. Please do. Oh no, is he just going to get worse on this? There's a lot to it. Uh, I will just say that uh, going in, I already knew that there was going to be a few episodes in particular, particularly later in the series that are going to be really, really hard for me to watch again. That frankly were already not great or had pissed me, pissed me the fuck off even when I first saw the show. But I was reading the episode descriptions for all the episodes on the back of each DVD cover when I rewatched the pilot a few weeks ago. And I was definitely a walk down the memory of, oh no. Lastly, I just wanted to say I love that you guys brought up the show Hannibal during your episode on Bushwhacked because I also brought it up to my partner as we were finished watching the episode. He never got into Firefly and had only recently seen the first season and a half of Hannibal. I'd seen all of it except for the last couple of episodes. Uh, I just had to get rid of Cable before because I never finished it. I was It was already canceled by then anyway. In Bushwhacked, when they showed the bodies hanging from the ceiling, I mentioned to him how interesting it was to me that it was considered acceptable TV gore had evolved between what Firefly had first aired in 2002 and what Hannibal first aired on NBC in 2013. Can you imagine what the survivor the survivor turned Reaver's face would have looked like on Hannibal? Yeah. Uh, either later that day or the next, we started watching Hannibal together because all three seasons are on Amazon Prime for no additional charge and having so much fun revisiting it with him. I love that Firefly is like sending you out and Hannibal, this show about like eating people and is just this dour nightmare of a show. Hannibal is sensitive. a fun one. Hannibal cares about people's feelings. They do. In a grunguignol sort of way. Um, yes, but they do. Uh, though not without its flaws, particularly in the way the show treats its female characters. There yeah. is so much about Ham- Hannibal that I love, and I forgot how much I love that show. Uh, and it's all thanks to your Firefly podcast. Nothing can hey. stop the critically acclaimed signal, Johnny Starlight. Well, thank you, Johnny. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, um, yeah, I'm glad uh, you wrote that, and I'm glad we got a perspective of a real sex worker, because we were really uncomfortable with that. Yeah. Uh, I'm glad that we're not alone. For people who aren't uh, subscribing to our Patreon, mm-hmm. uh, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network uh, a new show that we uh, are putting on now because we reached a landmark over 250 subscribers uh, we promised that at 250 subscribers we would do a podcast dedicated to firefly one podcast per episode of firefly uh, i had been a fan when it came out whitney only saw the movie and he has a vague memory of it mm. so i'm rediscovering it and he's discovering it for the first time and what we have discovered with every episode is that, yeah, there are things that are really great about it. And there you can see why, especially at the time, the novelty value of it 
was really impressive. There are also things about it that kind of suck. Yeah, don't don't hold up. Never, ne- perhaps never held up. Yeah, maybe we were looking at it from a, from a different perspective uh, mm-hmm. when it came out, but now when we're watching it, uh, yeah, the movies. Uh, sorry, the show's attempts at feminism are tinted by a very adolescent form of male macho moralizing yeah. uh, that undermines all that and mm. is actually comes across as I think the word uh, Johnny Starlight used was a sort of like a lack of maturity. Yeah. Um, I think it's fair to say that, you know, Buffy the Vampire Slayer was mostly about uh, t- uh, young women. Mm-hmm. Angel was about adults. Uh, Firefly is very adolescent in its particular range of fantasies yeah. and interests. It's, and sometimes it's, 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 it's great, but sometimes yeah. it's merely immature. It's more interested in genre than like character yeah. ideas. Yeah, it's a kind of thing that like it's it's a you know you it's a it's a comic book that's like made for like ten year old boys mm. in some regards. You know, like you know the kind of thing that you would read from Marvel comics in the nineties, mm. and that's okay. Give, give me legend any old day. Yeah, but like there there are elements of that 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 really really work great, and there are elements of it that man it just doesn't really 100% work and we've been interesting it's been an interesting journey to reevaluate it and really talk about it uh, much the same way we do Star Trek mm-hmm. uh, a show that we're also reviewing episode by episode and which doesn't always hold up the way you think it does um, so it's been really uh, quite a trip and I'm really glad people are uh, enjoying it and it's uh, kind of validating to know that I'm not crazy because I'm like mm-hmm. wait a minute was, was it always crap what happened <laughs> I mean again the show isn't crap Parts of it are crap. Um, but there are new episodes of that every single week, and you can uh, listen to it uh, on any donation level at the Critically Acclaimed Network Patreon page. We also have a bunch of stuff up there. We have that Star Trek podcast, um, our monthly show, Not on Disney+. Plus. Uh, we do commentary tracks. We just went for Citizen Kane. There's a ton of stuff up there. And a huge backlog if you subscribe now. I want to give a best, very special shout-out to everyone who does subscribe. A very special shout-out to everyone who takes the time to write us. I'm sorry we can't get to every letter, but we're trying. Mm. Um, you have such interesting things to say. You have such interesting questions. And it's a real pleasure to interact with you. And thank you very yeah, much yeah. for that. Uh, don't forget to follow us on Twitter. I'm at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibel. We are together at Critic Acclaim. If you want to write into us, don't forget the email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Uh, Whitney, am I forgetting anything? No, just you know, subscribe to our Patreon and you'll get piles and piles of stuff in your ears. And if you can't afford to, we totally get it. Uh, but yeah, if you hear anyone saying they're looking for podcasts right now, they have time to fill, well, let them know we exist. Mm. That would be really, really cool. Anyway, thank we, you. We do tend to go on. We do. So we're going <laughs> to cut this off right now. Thank you, everybody, once again for joining us. Sincerely yours, Bibbs and Whitney. <laughs>